Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Welcome back to The Radical. I'm Nick Turzo. It's been a few months since we last dived into film music on this show, and this week's guest is a master at connecting music, visual, and narrative. If you watch a film by most any A-list director, then my guest, film music supervisor, Randall Poster's name is all over those film credits. Directors such as Martin Scorsese, Wes Anderson, Richard Linklater, Todd Phillips, and Todd Haynes, to name a few, all rely on Randall's impeccable music curation. You will also recognize his work from TV and streaming series such as The Queen's Gambit, Tiger King, Boardwalk Empire, and Vinyl. Randall also recently produced the film The Devil All the Time, which premiered recently on Netflix. In this episode, we will learn why iconic film directors depend on Randall to identify, curate, and guide the music which enhances storytelling in their films. Coming up, my conversation with the incredibly talented Randall Poster. Hey, Randall. Hello there, Nick. How are you? Welcome, welcome. Thank you. I am thrilled to have you. I think this would need to possibly be a 10-part podcast to cover the questions I have for you and the length of your career and your contributions. So, but... We'll do the short version is part okay. one. Okay. Um, how is um, your life during this uh, COVID? I mean, I assume productions are shut down. Are you working? Yeah, I mean, you know, my life is complicated as everyone's life has been complicated by it. Um, you know, I had a bunch of projects that were in post-production um, at the beginning of March. So those were for the most part that you know we were able to proceed at a certain you know progressively um there were a couple movies that stopped shooting that were in production there were a couple things that didn't get into production because of the complications um you know and over the course of time uh a movie that was preparing is actually going to started shooting today in Los Angeles under the new sort of protocols um and, uh, you know, it's uh, people are feeling their way forward. But, you know, as cases rise, I think it becomes harder and harder to count on any kind of uh, count on any calendar, really. And I mean, are the protocols just simply in at least in California that it just limits who's in the room? I mean, is that what happens? Yeah. And, and I think with testing and 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 I think crews largely you know, are just trying to figure out how to go about their business um, where, you know, in a way where they had, say, easier access to the actors and to set, you know, where, say, props would jump in and they would turn the the soda can around or, you know, I think those things are not happening in the same way, you know, or touching up makeup or whatever else mm. it might be. It'll be much more of a um, post- 
thing if that needs to be done. Yeah, or I, I, I don't know, or else they're just, you know, or actors are going to be, have to be much more aware of what they look like at every moment, you know, and take some responsibility for, for those kinds of adjustments. Well, I guess. for some that are vain enough that that shouldn't be too much of a problem, but. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> so explain to me, like, because I've had uh, Steve Gazicki on earlier when we did this podcast and people right. complained to me that like, you didn't really get into what his job is. And can you, so can you get more into the right. elements of what, yeah, so, what it is? So, uh, so my standard response to that is that a musical supervisor helps a director or the, you know, the creative team both imagine and then execute a musical strategy for the movie, right? So whether that's figuring out um, how to navigate any on-camera music that's going to be happening in the course of production, um, or, you know, ultimately figuring out what the, um, uh, what the musical element is um, doing to help reinforce time and place, um, or to render insight into character, um, you know, how aggressively you're going to use songs to a cinematic end in terms of where it's, you're using songs sometimes not simply as it's playing out of a radio, but, you know, more as sort of a score or, a um, uh, an overhanging uh, dramatic element. Um, and then oftentimes, not all the time, but working closely with the director and the composer to figure out what the original music is going to do and where it goes and, and, and things like that. I mean, I've known you a while. Um, I'm incredibly kind of intimidated by you and impressed by your breadth of understanding music in so many different areas, historical periods, you know, the scope of, yeah. I mean, some of that comes from, I mean, some of that comes from just, you know, studying it right. Where, you know, in terms of like, I always talk about how say in working on boardwalk empire, the first season of boardwalk empire was set in 1920. And, and even Mr. Scorsese is not really grounded in music that preceded say 1925. 1920, there's no radio, um, you know, and just sort of becoming, uh, you know, doing sort of leaning on any kind of academic background I would have and researching, talk, finding some people who are more expert in the era and, and, and picking their brains and sort of relying on, you know, the kindness of others. Right. And I mean, Matt, for you, you want a Grammy, right, for that somewhere along the way? Boardwalk yeah. Empire, yeah. We, that was Grammy for just it. incredible to me, the work you did on that in that period. I mean, I was yeah, floored yeah. by that. Thank you. So. Thank you. Well, it's great, you know, it's great repertoire, you know, we, and, we, and we brought just great singers to sort of render great repertoire. And we've been working, or I've been working for a long time with a guy named Vince Giordano, um, who sort of lives in this era of music or in these eras of music, 20s and 30s primarily. And so he has a lot of the period arrangements or adapts, you know, the arrangements to a period style. And so I thought, you know, I think that what was we did was that even though it was a, it was a, a antique repertoire on a certain level, I think we brought a lot of life to it. Yeah, you sure did. So, and, and what is the, um, for you that, you know, you have this 
I mean, it speaks to your reputation and your skills. You have this cadre of A-list directors you work with, from Martin Scorsese to Wes Anderson, Todd Phillips, Rick Licklatter. What bonds form between you and a director that keeps that ongoing? Well, you know, I... I would say, you know, I've for, like, for instance, like with Todd, with Todd Phillips and with Wes, you know, I met them very at the start of their careers, really. So, um, you know, I would say that the good fortune that I had was that I, you know, began working with my contemporaries and they just kept making movies. You know, Todd Haynes among them. I mean, Todd Haynes and I were college classmates. Um, so you know, I think that was my good fortune. Um, and, 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 and I think, you know, at least with those three directors, you know, though they, they stylistically very different, they share, um, I think a lot of the same assets, they they bring a lot of the same assets to their process in terms of just being obsessive, uh, super smart, are, are unafraid to use music creatively, um, are willing to, are, are willing to, um, forego any type of established rules for how you use music. Um, and, and so, I mean, that's been, you know, one of the great, um, just sort of one of the great gifts in my life was, is to be able to continue to making, making, continue to make movies with, with, with these guys. Right. And is there in the director realm, is there, is it more challenging for you in your position? If the director has some musical vision versus not having any, or is one better than the other? Well, I mean, if they have, if they have, if they, if they have a genuine musical vision, you know, I mean, there are times where people think they do have a musical <laughs> vision. Um, and, 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 and again, you know, it's, 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 it, it's oftentimes, you know, the preconception of how music is going to work in your film is, is, is belied by the practical application, right? So you think the music is going to do one thing and then somehow it doesn't really, it, it, it doesn't really render, you know, it doesn't really deliver or is, it doesn't have the impact that you imagine that it would. So, but no, I mean, I think to your point is that I am always, it is always a benefit to me when a director has a, uh, a vivid point of view, you know, and, and, and hopefully the confidence to have a dialogue or, 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 or also, or have the, has the confidence to allow a certain kind of process to, to get underway, you know, where, okay, actually here's something we hadn't thought of, or this might be something that we should consider or. Right. As you mentioned that earlier, I mean, and you mentioned sometimes things don't render, right. And the music doesn't right. set up. Like how far into that do you, are you normally, I mean, can it, can it be? Well, I try to get involved as soon as possible. You know, I mean, oftentimes I get involved early because there's a, there's a element of music that plays in the course of production. Right. Um, and so that has to be dealt with. Um, and, um, but I like to be involved as, as much as I can be. Um, a lot of times say with Wes, for instance, is that a lot of, you know, oftentimes there's a good amount of work that gets done between the movies. 
where we where we kind of he he has some kind of notion that we then explore and expand and and then are prepared to apply it you know once we are underway Got it. and like in a normal film like how much music will you kind of let's say experiment with or temp into a scene or like i mean is it a ton of music or by now are you kind of more focused and it doesn't turn into that so much no, i would say you know i would say there's you know genuinely gen, generally you sort of go through at least a half a ton you know <laughs> um and i don't mind going through a ton you know um you know it's because it, sometimes you just don't know where the exploration is going to lead you you know it's not so much fun when it becomes just sort of a um uh a, a practice of redundancy right where where director says oh i love that song can i hear a hundred songs just like that you know it's like well what do you what are, what are what are you looking for you know um um so it it it, it all depends i mean sometimes what do they say somebody once told me a director when I started out working out with them is that uh, they say they said uh, I'm not a pilgrim, you know. Is that is that they you know they aren't going to be early settlers, you know. <laughs> and how do you balance, um, let's say, existing songs versus something that you actually, um, you know, kind of refer or bid have someone build for you versus composition in the film? Like how do those things coexist or how does one become more important than the other? Does one? I'm not exactly sure what you're asking me. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying basically there's songs that already exist. There's songs that you can commission for a film and say, we want an original piece of music. Right. And there's the, the com right. composite, the composer who's composing score. Yeah, score. Yes, how do those things? Yeah intertwined through a film? Well, I mean, I think you do. I mean, I think as far as, you know, I mean, instinctively, I guess I always want to put period music in period pieces, right? Um, for instance, with one of the challenges of, say, um, Boardwalk Empire was that the original recordings weren't technically up to, uh, you know, were not technically viable to use, right? You couldn't get clean recordings, right? Um, and then there are situations where, you know, say if you're trying, if 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 they're, for instance, I did the show Vinyl, where we had a lot of um, uh, historical musical characters performing on camera, and so we sort of made the decision that it would be more exciting and more fun to re-record those things. You know, and also with re-recording too, it gives you the flexibility where like you can isolate a bass guitar or you can take the vocals in and out wherever you want to or things like that. Um, so I don't know exactly like the, uh, there's a certain point where it feels like a movie should have either new songs or newly recorded versions of songs. Um, and then as far as like the, 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 the balance of songs versus score, I mean, you feel that out a little bit, and then there's a point in the in the process where you do where you do something called spotting, where you like go through the movie and you sort of say, okay, we should have a song obviously goes here, but let's have this you know a thematic score here, and then you have to sort of have a bit of a dialogue with the composer. Where you say like, you know, in a situation where you say, 
that could that could be a song and the composer says you know or i'll say it is that you know what i think you need i think i think i think this needs to be score because i think you need this moment to establish the uh um we should est- to establish uh the thematic through line right um and do you have, I mean, I know directors kind of build their teams as they go and keep them somewhat intact. I mean, on the composer front, I mean, do you have say on that? I mean, if a project doesn't look like it's aligned with that particular composer, or is that a director call or? I mean, that, you know, that, that depends. I mean, you know, there's situations where, you know, a director is more, or the producers are more interested in hearing my point of view than other, you know, in other situations. I mean, I always point to the, you know, you know, as far as the other, the, another ask, another question that I get asked is that, well, you know, how involved are you in directing the score of a movie? And some of that, it just depends. Like for instance, I've worked with Sam Mendes quite a bit and Sam has a, his relationship with Tom Newman um, uh, preceded mine. And so he doesn't really need me to, in, to mediate between him and Tom. You know, and then there are other situations where, you know, music can be, talking about music can be quite abstract. And so really, sometimes I think it's really my job is to sort of help establish a common vocabulary. So we're all, we're all talking about the same thing or, tr- or as much as possible, using the same words to describe the same thing or using groups of words to describe the same things. And has there ever been, like in your time doing this, and I know every situation's unique, but... Has there ever been like an artist that you really, really love or a song that you've tried to get into any kind of scene on one of the movies you're working in and just, it's never happened. It just, you can't find the place. Yeah. 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 It happens. And I mean, that's why it's, it's kind of sweet when it finally, if you finally succeed in getting it in there. I mean, for instance, there's a song by this group, the Vogue's called you're the one. Um, which I finally succeeded in getting into this series called The Queen's Gambit that's outright, that just opened, I think, last week on Netflix, a limited series. Um, You know, uh, I worked on a film with a director named Antonio Campos called Christine um, a few years ago. Um, And the first 45 I ever bought was, was Laughing by the Guess Who. And, and so I got a great kick out of the fact that I got laughing finally into a movie. Um, but then I also tell a story is how there's this track. Um, there is this R and B singer named Katie Webster and I'm going to age, I'm going to age myself right now, but, um, you probably have shared this experience is that like, I think when I was in like 11th grade, I was driving home from a friend's house and, um, the song came on the radio and it was like one o'clock in the morning and I pulled over and I just was, you know, I was just like, please back announce this song, please, please back announce this song, you know, and like had to endure like one song, then another song. I was like, please. And finally it was like, okay, Katie Webster never let me go. And I tried to get that song into 30 movies, right? I would always try it. And then finally, like one night I was watching um, True Blood, right? And they had it on as an end credit of True Blood. And Gary Calamore had, was supervised it. And I called him the next day, you know, and I was like, 
Katie Webster, never let me go. <laughs> Fuck you. I've been, I've been, I've been wanting to use that for so long. It was both like Bravo, fuck you. But, um, so, so that happens, you know, that happens. And then there are things where you think like you have it where you finally have placed it and then somehow it, it ends up out of the movie, you know? So it can be a little bit of a heartbreak, but I keep yeah, I love at that. It. I love those stories. Cause I do hear those and that's funny. You waited all that time and Gary Calamar snaked it from yeah. you. Yeah, he got it. He beat me to it. Doesn't happen too often. <laughs> so on the the things where you work more, like on the series, right, versus a film, I mean, right. I mean that has to be a much larger ingestion of uh, material. Um, and how do you budget your times? Like, well, um, when well, I mean, you know, I I really I've not really been very interested in broadcast television. Um, cause that's so fast and they really don't, re- unless it's something that's scripted, they don't really care about creating a really dynamic musical element where they don't spend enough time kind of trying to make that happen. But for the most part, the series that I've been on have been more on a, you know, I, I think that, you know, say Boardwalk Empire or Vinyl both had really had, um, cinematic production values, you know, and had you know, uh, a cinematic, uh, ambition. Um, and so even though it was, it was like working on 10 movies in a year to a certain degree, um, you know, it was, you could pace yourself and you could go along with it with some of these other, you know, as, as things have oriented more towards television or that, you know, we're in a moment with like, what is television and what is, you know, ultimately it's all television. Um, you know, it can be, it, it can be, it can be a challenge to sort of keep up with all the, all the edits and all the episodes, you know, um, but, um, you know, you try to, you just sort of do your best. And is there like when you do um, sometimes the sequels, like, you know, the hangover or whatever, I mean, is there a template to that that you just stick through, through all three or is it changed dynamically each time? I mean, I've seen all of them, but just curious from your point of view. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, I, I don't think that there's ever any assumptions really. I mean, there were no, you know, I think that, you know, Todd uses music at points to great comic effect, um, which is situational. Um, and Todd is really good with music. You know, he's really bold with music. Um, we, we generally have really healthy budgets doing those movies. So, you know, we, we don't, we, we, we really can sort of, um, chase some really big titles. Um, um, and by that, I mean, you know, um, hip hop, what's, is that politically? I, I don't, I can't keep hip-hop. up. Yeah. So, you know, because again, those things are always complicated by the fact that there's yes. samples and so many writers and, you know, the, the splits are all wacky, you know, and so those things can be challenging. Um, so I don't think that there's any real, you know, I don't think there's any real, um, I don't think it ever veers into sort of the formula. And I mean, on the licensing tip, do I mean, do you do that all in-house or do you have that done out of house? Someone you work with? It depends. Sometimes, sometimes a studio will do it. Sometimes we'll bring in a licensing service. Sometimes, you know, I get somebody who works closely with me to sort of take control of it. Um, it just depends. Um, and you just produced a Netflix film. I just produced 
Yeah, I just produced a movie with Antonio Campos called The Devil All the Time, currently playing on Netflix. It's great. It's dark. Yeah, it's pretty dark. It's pretty funny is that, I mean, I actually produced a movie. That's how I started in the movie business. I produced a movie. When I got out of college, I wrote a script with a friend of mine about the college radio station. And we developed it and workshopped it at the Sundance Lab and made this movie in 1990. Um, and that was sort of the... That was sort of the, my introduction. And also, because I, I just always like love music and love movies and oversaw the music and really came out of that experience wanting to work with great film directors and thought that by focusing on music, that would be my, um, that would be the best point of contact. And that's sort of the way that it worked out. Um, and so here it is, whatever it is, 25 plus years later, and I made another movie. Um, and it's funny is because, you know, it is, it's very, very dark. And, and I get a lot of like, hmm, that's the movie you, you know, I didn't really, didn't really see that, that, that coming, but I just really, you know, what happened was, is that I read the book and I'd read a collection of stories by Donald Ray Pollock called Knock 'em Stiff and then read the novel and just like, I think this would be an interesting movie. And I was working on Christine with Antonio at the time and he shared my, my, my instinct for it. And we developed it over the course of a couple of years and then was able to attach some, you know, Tom Holland and Rob Pattinson to it. And, and, you know, and then we, we, we got it going on. It's a good one during this, uh, um, during this stay at home order that we're all under, so to speak. This is a really good movie. I think so. A lot of people, a lot of people have seen, a lot of people have seen the movie. Um, and I'm very I love proud your of music love choices it. too. It's very good. Very good. So, thank you yeah, thank you people better watch this movie or there'll be trouble um is there any particular like director or is there a musician that you've died to work with that you haven't i mean like you have this stellar <laughs> group of guys but yeah i don't you know i don't i you know what i don't i i don't really think that there's any anybody that's you know anybody that's missing really i don't i mean I, I really am interested in working with young filmmakers, younger filmmakers. Um, it looks like I'm going to work on a film that Johnny Greenwood is going to do the score for, which is somebody who's somebody I wanted to work with. I did some work with him. He was part of the group that we put together when we made all of those um, glam rock era songs for Todd Haynes's um, Velvet Goldmine. He was part of that group. Um, and so that's happening, I believe, knock on wood. I don't know. I mean, I think I could help Steven Spielberg out a little bit. Well, you you have most of the grades. He might be one of the only ones missing on your list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, and you know, I just say because I think I just think that he, I think the music could be better and, and the songs could be better in, in, in yeah, Spielberg yeah, yeah. movies. And so when you work like with um, Linklater on on Boyhood, like, and that's such a right. extended piece of work. How did that work for you, yeah. really, during that? Well, I've, you know, I've worked with Rick a bunch over the years and he, we actually, act, coincidentally, we talked on Friday about something that he's working on right now. You know, with Boyhood, you know, Rick had it, Rick had that pretty well plotted out as far as like the songs he wanted to use. And, you know, um, really, I would say that largely my, my, my primary role in that film was to make sure that he got everything that he wanted. You know, that was really, I would say, I mean, sometimes that is, that is, that is my role is really, you know, is to just, is to um, just make sure the director gets what he wants. 
you know, whether that in terms of like that, in a sense, what you're saying about licensing, even though I may not be technically sending out the request letters, is that almost, almost every song and every movie at some point, I have to get involved to try to lasso it, you know, and, and that was really in terms of just using all of my experience and all of my relationships to sort of make that massive songs, you know, possible. Not to get too down the rabbit hole on technical stuff like licensing and stuff. I mean, do you see it getting, mm. is anyone waking up to making it any easier for people these days or is it still a struggle? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how they, you know, I don't know how, I mean, it's in a, on a certain level, it's gotten easier in that I think that when I first started out, there were bands and artists who just like, I never will license to whatever it is. I'm not licensing my music. And I think, you know, as the, as the retail market went upside down, um, you know, people were more open to it and saw it more as an, a, 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 um, a vehicle to make people aware of their music. Um, but no, I mean, it's not, it's, it's complicated in the sense that, you know, there is no blue book, you know, everything is a negotiation. Um, generally, you're not dealing with one entity, you know, you're certainly dealing with two in terms of who owns the recording and who's the right, who are the writers, oftentimes there are multiple writers. It still gets complicated when you have guys and bands who hate each other and don't want, one doesn't want the other one to make it. I mean, it, there's the human element enters into almost all of it, you know, or people don't, you know, or, or there's a situation where, you know, as there's been consolidation in the music business where two companies merge and they fire half the staff and then all of a sudden nobody knows who's the person that talks to this artist who, you know, they have no relationship with the artist. They don't even know who to call or, or they don't even know that they own it or, you know, where they, where they're, especially in period pieces where, you know, they've inherited labels, they've, they bought, they bought companies that have these assets that nobody was ever aware of. So, but again, that's, you know, like I said, sometimes is that the challenges is what sometimes makes your use of a piece of music more unique, you know, or that maybe in a certain situation, nobody but me is going to get you the rights to use a piece of music. I can see that. And I mean, the economics of it, you know, from a soundtrack point of view, I mean, have changed greatly in the nineties. We were just banging those things out and selling millions and millions and millions. It was a wonderful time right. for music soundtracks or film soundtracks. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. How, yeah. I missed that. I missed that. I, I was going to say you kind of came in maybe towards just the end of it or the, yeah. 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 I got a little bit of it, but not, not, you know, I certainly, but again, also I wasn't, you know, there was a moment in time where like record companies were financing film music budgets. Right. And so, and, and I was, ne that was never really where I was in the center of that because I just, I never wanted to have to listen to the head of a record company to tell me what songs that I needed to put into a movie and neither did the directors, you know, it was an interesting period. I mean, I had my run with yeah, a couple look, of, you yeah. know, the larger ones like last action hero where we had, you know, huge budgets and the soundtrack did very well. The film didn't really. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was yeah. a different time, different time. So I, you have to listen to a ton of music. Do you get any pleasure from listening anymore? Do you have time or is it all work? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I, I can still, I, I mean, I, I think I still can respond to music as a civilian really. Um, and, um, and a lot of times my, you know, my, my listening habits um, are, you know, the, 
they're they're somewhat dictated by the projects that I'm working on, right? So, you know, if I'm working on Superfly, I'm doing a deep dive into, um, you know, Atlanta, um, uh, and 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 if I'm doing, you know, the Devil all the time, I'm mining the the, the Billboard country music charts of 1957, you know. So that, that's sort of the focus of my, you know, at points that, you know, it, I'm very pointed in sort of what I'm listening to. Um, but, you know, I try to keep an open ear. And, and again, I'm not, I mean, I would say really in terms of one of, because I'm not, I'm not a musician. I'm not really technical in terms of my, my understanding of music is that, you know, whether it's true or not, I've always felt that one of my assets was the fact that I, at least I, I knew what I liked. That's a good asset. It's proven to be a, a very <laughs> good asset. So yeah, you've done yeah, pretty well. Pretty good. So I mean, is I mean, staying current for you really is that that necessary in what you do? To a certain degree, mm. uh, I I I work. You know, I work hard at that. You know, to stay current. Do your daughters degree, turn yeah. you on anything? Yeah, that's yeah. Nice. That's always a nice resource. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for the first time, they're, they're really becoming more interested in sort of looking back and making some of the connections. But, you know, one of my daughters, it's hip hop all the time for the most part. Um, and, uh, and my younger daughter is, I think, more interested in sort of legacies. Interesting. And what do you have upcoming? Like what's on your plate that you can talk about? Or- um, well, I've done, um, I've, this, this show Queen's Gambit is out right now. Tell me about that. I haven't week. seen it. It's basically, it's a, um, it's a based on a novel set in the, set in the um, mid century, mid 20th century about this, this, this young girl who's orphaned and becomes a chess prodigy um, and kind of uh, marks per her, um, her journey through Kind of her adolescence and and her and the intricacies of the master chess world. I know that's not the most exciting preview, but it's actually it's very well done. How many like how many episodes is a season seven? Seven. Okay. And what music period were you working in for that one? Uh, you know, in the largely in the in the early sixties, sixties. Um, and then I, I, I got a, I have a bunch of, um, uh, a bunch of, um, or a handful of documentaries that I've been working on. I have Todd Haynes has made a Velvet Underground documentary, um, that's really quite special. Um, uh, Questlove is finishing a documentary about, um, these series of concerts in Harlem in 1969 that, kind of got lost in, uh, and were, was overshadowed by Woodstock, sort of which was happening coincidentally. And were those civil rights um, driven concerts? Then, I mean, is that the point of them or not so much? Uh, I think it was sort of, you know, it was sort of like, um, it, I guess to a certain degree, but it was, it was more about, about um, uh, um, celebrating um, black culture, you know, they had these concerts in Morris Park over the course of a few weekends. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, there's a civil rights component to it for sure. Um, and then um, 
uh, Mr. Scorsese has made a series of short documentaries um, with Fran Lebowitz that we've been working on for oh, quite some interesting. time. So those are some things that'll come out, I don't know, interesting. soon-ish. Very interesting. So. All right, May. Well, I usually ask people what they're listening to. I don't think I'm going to bother you with that question. That's always my rap question because you're probably listening to everything. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kim Petras, Heart to Break, over and over and over again. Okay. That's one that, 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 that's a bit of a, you know, it's like one of those things where I like the studio version, the unplugged version, but that's like a song that I just think is just a guilty pleasure of mine. Um, and actually, I have a record that's coming out, uh, or that came out two weeks ago. We made a record with Loud and Wainwright with um, the Vince Giordano big band. So Thirty Tigers put that out. Um, sort of American songbook, but Loudon's always been one of my favorite singers, and he just destroys. Well, I didn't this know that. I learned something new. Yeah. So he's a yeah. he's a very nice man. So very talented. I'd be curious to yeah. hear that for sure. So yeah. All right, my friend. Well, I'm going to let you go. All right, Nick. Great to see you, okay? Thank you. Stay healthy. and uh, Okay. I look forward to seeing you in person sometime. Hopefully, uh, sooner the better. I can be in New York. The happier I'll be. So, All right. Thanks, buddy. All right, bye-bye. Have a good day. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to the Radical Pod. Dot com, um, the radicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week. Bye.